Okay, so welcome to Conversations with Criminals. My name's Matt Price. For those of you who are new to this podcast, this is a podcast where I talk to people who have been on the wrong side of the law. Now, what I've learned over the past few years is that criminals is a fairly broad term. There are lots of people who have broken the law in various capacities, and my project has been to speak to them, to understand their mindset, and I've spoken to a whole range of people. So, welcome. Thank you very much to all the people who've left great comments on iTunes. I'm going to ask that you continue to do that because that's the only feedback that I get, really. Uh, comments on social media and people sharing, so that is very much appreciated. I've had a couple of people say to me, well, there's no way you can speak to active, active criminals. And actually, you're right. And there's several reasons for that, really. Firstly, they're busy being active. And secondly, I have no intention of interfering with anybody's business. That is none of my business. The people who I speak to have been on the wrong side of the law. They have committed various crimes. They have gone to jail for some of those crimes. And most importantly, they're able to offer an insight into their lives. And that's what this podcast is very much about. Today's guest fascinated me. I have to say he was is the son of two heroin dealers. He moved from Scotland in the 80s and he chose a career where he was robbing banks, which is something that's glamorized, I think, quite a bit in films. And whenever you think of a bank robbery, I, or I tend to think of a multi-million pound operation and blowing up a safe and making a getaway. But this was a very different approach to bank robbery. And I googled it as well. And actually, in London in the 80s or late 80s and early 90s, there were quite a lot of bank robberies. It was a popular thing to do. He also talks about hoisting as well, which is a prison term for shoplifting. And by that, I mean stealing to order and stealing a lot of things in order to be able to sell them and to make a decent profit doing it. The most important thing about this one, I suppose, or the thing that really stayed with me that was how he speaks about three generations of his family, him, his dad and his granddad all go into Barlini prison. But he speaks very proudly of the fact that his son is what he terms a straight goer. I really enjoyed this one, and I hope that you enjoy it too. I was third generation Balani prison. My grandfather was in Balani prison in 1937 when he was 19. He went to, uh, so 38, 39 it would have been, when he was that age, he came in from work on a Sunday as a plasterer. They took him to El Alamein. He ended up a sergeant, was decorated at Monte Casino. I read his dispatches from uh, Q of the War Museum and to read the stuff he'd done over a two-year period in Italy and Sicily, this was a tough captain stating nine different counts of bravery from taking tanks on, saving his whole regiment when they get caught at breakfast. He got his military medal and his George uh, Cross for hiding in a bunker and getting bombed. But he'd been in Bellini. Uh, my dad was in Bellini. When I went to Berlin, the screws knew my dad in Berlin and would come and comment that they remember the 1971 Madani's mates come in and they had a full chemist hall and basically everyone overdosed and they were carrying them at Berlin prison on uh, blankets. There were so many people that they're not on tuna and um, downers. So, point being, my son, 
He'd never been to jail, don't smoke pot, never been in trouble in his life. So I brought a chain. So for me and my other brother who's got four girls that all work as well and they're all straight goals, productive members of society. That's the one positive thing. Never mind money, never mind anything. That's all that mattered t- to me was to bring my son up and not be a criminal. <coughs> Because I don't want him to go through none of the bullshit of being in a cell. I mean, I've done 12 jails. I've done Perth, Berlin, Longregain, Dartmoor, Belmars, Wandsworth. done SEG units in seven of them. Had the shit kicked out of me. Been brutalised. Treated like shit. Had my ribs broke. I've been perjured. I've done a year in the jail for something I've never even done. Where two prosecutor fiscals in Scotland lied. I flew Cornier on that one and Cornier the time before. First time I was ever on a plane in my life was British Airways in handcuffs on Cornia. Um, so I don't miss the jail and I don't miss none of that. And the brutalisation and the dehumanisation that they done to us at times in the 80s and the 90s in the prison service was fucking despicable. And then they've got this flag of political correctness and rights now, which makes me sick considering the way that we were treated. And my first prison sentence was for £20 worth of cannabis, but because of who my parents was, I got a year. Can, can I take you back? Can you tell yeah. me who your parents were? Yeah. My parents basically uh, were uh, wholesale heroin suppliers in Scotland. My dad started off with his mates. He was a young hippie dude, and they used to screw the chemists. So and what year was that? 67, 68. Okay. So through screwing the chemists, and in them days pre-war, you would get pure cocaine and pure heroin. Um, the they basically cultivated in Kilmarnock, just outside Glasgow. There was a lot, a lot of people uh, on, on heroin that were sort of hippies. And then through that, I watched it evolving from the hippies into the criminalisation of drugs in the 80s, where both I would have both parents in jail or one either in jail, and they were dealing. Um, so basically, my dad for 30 years sold heroin, and then for the last 30 years of his life, worked as team leader in a rehab helping people get off it um, my mother as I said she still had a warrant out for drug supply uh, 29 years when she died in London um, something I'm pretty proud of to be honest because they couldn't even catch her in the end there's not many people get away from this court system for 29 years especially the high court one but she did and um, God bless her so yeah we grew up in that that, that atmosphere of um it was sort of like I say hippies and criminals growing up me and my brothers um, drug squad and all the nonsense from the police that that we had growing up yeah what's, the, what's your earliest memory of the police? <sighs> my earliest memory of the police see it was weird because I was first born my mum was 15 when she had me so my grandmother ended up with me and by the time my other brother was born a year and a half later and my mum and dad got a place to live because my mum was 15, my dad was 17. Um, I used to like, like be with my grands and i go to theirs at the weekend. So it was like this parallel world. But my first memory of the police would have been them busting the house when I was about 10, 11 years of age and just the pure way that they, they just took over everything. Um, and just destroyed through just pure badness What because they couldn't find what they were looking for they would rather just destroy <laughs> that's my first memory of the police did you know what your parents were doing then at that age did you understand it 
I didn't fully understand. I thought dope was like people smoking cannabis and that, I suppose. I didn't fully understand what heroin was. But within a couple of years, we understood what heroin was because of just the environment in the area where we were living at and there were so many people overdosing and tragedies and stuff that you, kids aren't stupid and then you just sort of educate yourself through that as well without ever having a in-depth discussion with your parents about any of this. You know, I mean, it maybe come out in an argument 30 years later, but you, at the time, nothing was said. This was normality, pure normality. I mean, if I were to turn up, I go in my mum's purse, mate. My mum and I have like 40 fucking gram wraps of heroin and like three and a half grand there. And I could just take what I want. I had a fucking motorbike at the back door. You just jump on a motorbike. If I don't want to go to school, I don't need to go to school. See, my mum was more like a, a big sister relationship with me than actual mother yeah. whereas with my gran who was from two generations ahead I mean she just purely didn't understand me as I started going from being a kid to skinhead to American to going off the, to going off the rails because their generation just didn't get it but my mum was more like my sister so she, I suppose she sold out to me which is sort of good when you're 14, 15 you think but as you get older you realise really it ain't that good and I wouldn't have done it with me own <laughs> Tell me about you going off the rails. How did that happen? Um, see, for me, it was it was just I don't know. I was always angry, man. I don't even know why I was angry, but I was always angry as a kid. And and just growing up in the eighties in Scotland, it was just predominantly about post, not postcodes. That makes it sound really really petty. But the older people on the estates, you would aspire to be because they would act in a certain way. And a lot of chivalry in the way that they acted and not taking liberties, don't kick people when they were done. But if anyone ever comes into your estate looking for trouble, then it is your duty to protect the people of this estate by acting accordingly. And if you don't, you will not be able to show your face in public again. You couldn't have went to school the next day. So, like you say, it's like, their laws, to me, have never meant shit. I'm getting told laws by people who are covered up for people like Savile and Cyril Smith. And we knew this back then. So for me, you've got the law, yeah, but you've also got the reality of life. And if the reality of life and law sort of intermix and it gets a bit shady at times, then so be it. Because they are more than shady, they are dark in essence. One of the things, I'll tell you what I'm interested in actually, um, is the kind of the business side of drugs because how easy is it to go from the bottom of the pile say you know buying I don't know um, I don't even know what quantity people buy drugs in now like a, a quarter for yourself and then buying a half ounce and selling a bit on to someone to being a high profile drug dealer what, what, what's the journey to doing that? Well I started few times, mate. I, I've been nicked with kilos. So I got nicked with 12 kilos of weed when I was about 18. And we used to deal in bars and massive bits. But I also had lost everything. And I remember one time in particular starting with a half ounce. And I bought a half ounce up into a kilo. And that only took me about three months. But for that, you need to have your custom and your supply on con. So you're never running out. So you get ahead of the game to the extent that, it, yeah, and as long as your product's good, you, you've, you've got nothing stopping you getting your daily refills, what you need to get, and you've got the punters and you're treating them right, you can, you can get up pretty, pretty quick. 
Now, when you get into the realms of what happened in the 90s with the ecstasy, look at Carl Williams, for example. He was a tosser. But he ended up getting so much money making through ecstasy that he would just get sacks of cash and offer them to every idiot, I'll give you a hundred grand to kill someone and all that parameter start coming into the game where money. But for me, I mean, there's a, th- a saying called powder power and a lot of people change with drugs, even with their own mates and their own families to the point you get very sociopathic, you get very... Where do you, you might start with two grand and then you're sitting there with 200 grand but it still ain't enough. You, you, you get blind to and you get tunnel vision whereas I was always taught smart. Never have drugs in your house. Never have a tech list in your house. And that's as simple as that. Don't have anything in the house that you're living in and you can't get caught. I watch these caught programs where people are 130 grand under their bed and so much of this and so much of that. But I would also say, when I grew up, I wasn't really, I would sell amphetamine and, and cannabis, but I wasn't really good about selling Class A because of the stuff from my parents. Because even at a young age, I spotted that blood money you got no luck with. And no matter how big you built your castles in the sky, they're all made out of fucking sand. Because within a day, those animals could come, perjure, lie, set you up. Take everything, and this was even pre before the money like, were taking everything off. You had even started in '91, the Seizures Act in '91, before then, even. Um, and it was it could all be gone, it was just a puff of smoke. And I think that I don't know, man, I always had this feeling that it was a bit, very much like karma. And if you were selling pot, the same as later on, if I would steal from Hugo Boss and people like that, hundreds it's a thousand pounds off of gear I wouldn't have no conscience but I would never have went into someone's house and stole someone's Xbox or a TV that's scummy shit so like you said these crimes there's law and then to, to me there was always crimes that you would do and crimes that you certainly would not do and that was taken as a given and saying about robbing Hugo Boss because I've heard you talk about shoplifting mm-hmm. before so, tell me about that because it's, it's changed. the game has changed can people still shoplift now? I think we all Eastern Europeans here that come... See, there's the thing. Anyone can shoplift, yeah? Anyone can even go in and... The old one and up the road, we, we just go in, two of us with bin bags and just take a rack. And if anyone even looked at us, we just growl at them. So you could do that. But as I came to London, I learned the art of hoisting. Now, a hoister's a different thing from a shoplifter. I'm talking, I'm in and out of shop ten times and they don't even know I've been there. I'm a ghost. And I'm taking high-value stuff. I'll give you... The way I used to roll, I used to go out four hours on a Sunday and I'd give myself 300 or 400 or 500 pound target an hour. And then when I had my target, I would come home. But I would steal 129 Lacoste tracksuits, six 500 pound leather jackets out of choice, 34 Lacoste shirts. I mean, like, not fucking about. How, how did you do it? What did you go in with? Did you take a bag with you? I've still got my tagger for taking the tags off. I used to use a foil box. But I could even go in there with my tagger, detag them, and just fold up and take so much stuff packed in my jeans and round. We got a way of doing it with the clothes we would wear that you would look and I've not even got a bag and you think I've got nothing, but I'd have plenty. Did you ever get caught? Yeah, because no matter how good a thief you are, the last three times I got nicked, one time I was walking back to the car and there was a policeman who knew me, who saw me and bumped right into me, basically. There's nothing you could do about that. 
and I was making four grand's worth of Lacoste and it was half nine in the morning and they're all in there talking about EastEnders and Blue Water the night before they've not even had a cup of coffee and I'd already been in there and took four grand the next time after that was again at Blue Water uh, not Blue Water Lakeside the World Cup was on I usually didn't touch football stuff but when the World Cup was on if England were doing well and the CCTV'd me at 11.37 I was in the police car by 11.55 this is no other lie it'll be on a report in Grace Police Station and I had in the book because I was selling the England tops because England were doing well I think it was 159 England tops and the woman said you don't fuck a bat do you? <laughs> and that's true so that was to the extent I mean I would go and I would hit them and I would hit them hard because to me it was a war I don't want to move from Scotland when I come here I came to the south to to basically infiltrate, manipulate and take as much back as I could and when I come here and it was 88, 89 most of Bermans were robbing banks everyone was wearing Ralph Lauren there was no shutters so basically there is no I'm, I'm not going to say nothing because the statute of limitations meant to be 12 years on bank robbery but I'm sure they could find some legal ways as far as I'm concerned Every human being should rob a bank at least once in their life for the exhilaration. The exhilaration experience robbing a bank flawlessly, not even a, 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 a voice raised, no one hot, just done, dusted, outdoor money gone. As um, no finer feeling in the world. And I was doing quite a few few things that would have got me a lot of time in the jail. That's why even though I've done jail for things I've never done, when I look at the stuff I did do and never got caught for, I'm, I'm perfectly made my peace with that. But if I hadn't I got nicked, I ended up getting nicked with a nine bar and about a thousand pills because I went flying straight and I was on my way to a rave in Scotland uh, the day before my, I think it was my 22nd, 23rd birthday in London. And then I ended up in remand and then rehab. And if that hadn't happened, I probably wouldn't have Everything happens for a reason, but uh, the course I was on, I would I would have got caught and I'd have been doing ten years in park cars. But I ended up uh, on remand in Brixton for fourteen months and then getting a basically a court order to stay in rehab for three years. And if I didn't stay in the rehab for three years, then I'll come back to court, even if it was a day before the three years and do three to five years. And I ended up went there, was there twelve months, shagged my counsellor, then they couldn't breach my probation. And I got it. <laughs> yeah. You've robbed a bank. Mm-hmm. It's plural. Plural. Okay. Uh, I don't need specific detail, you know, or whatever, but I'm just... <clears throat> does that not take some planning to do that? And, and I'd like to know how, how, how you go about doing it, but also... It must have changed now. It's going to be a lot harder now. But, but t- t- talk me through. Well, well, now you've got screens that will come up, shut us straight away. What happened in the mid-90s was most of the town centres, including, funnily enough, where I picked you up, well, I won't say which station it was, but it, the one-way systems were all designed because of that, because it would take cops that long to get to places. So that's what one-way systems were firmly designed. One, They were a big part in the bank robbery stopping. The shutters were another part. The other thing was, you jump the counter and you get that safe. It's like Brendan Abbott in Australia with a postcard bandit. You got access to 60, 70, 100 grand. What stopped it mostly was, as soon as the glass screens come in, never mind the shutters, 
you're talking each teller's got about a grand and a half to two grand. So you're ju- ten years in the jail for three, four grand or six grand tops or a grand and a half bottoms. I could go to Hugo Boss, let's say, or Choice, go in there, get caught shortlifting, the first 15 times the magistrate's not even interested. So you start realising and you adapt. And that's what being, for me, it has always been about adaptation through life to survive. Because it's all, it ain't been like, because I've got two grand in the fucking draw and I'm going out there doing that. Most of the times I've been doing it, it's because I've either had no other option, I've been drove to it. Yeah. But I remember actually waking up furious with that just government and just being fucking furious. And I took a notion I wanted to go to the World Cup and I didn't have any money. The next day I was on the interrail and then um, going from Paris into Genoa and I went to the World Cup. Huh. That's freedom. And how was that funded then? Just by, by, no, by robbing the bank? By robbing the yeah, bank. Yeah, that's what I've done. Did I said like, I'm going to do it and I've done it. You did it by yourself? Mm-hmm. On my Jack Jones, mate. And did First you, one, yeah. And so you so you walk in, did you, would you have a weapon? Yeah, of course. What mm-hmm. type of weapon? Um, I think that was a Luger, of all things. Yeah. A German Luger. Okay. An old one. I got a Smith & Wesson there. I've also got a stun gun and I'm not raising a baseball bat. That's London life. That's just the reality of living in London. But yeah, I had a look at the first time. Yeah. And so you walk in mm-hmm. and what, what, what time of day? Oh, basically afternoon. Okay. Because you do it when the cops shift the change. So then they enter the shift. And um, I... Basically, I just remember... See, you can't, it's, it's not a case of once you've decided to do this, it's like, even with addiction or anything with me, if I decide to do something, even if it's a week before, as soon as that thought enters my brain, I've done that. And when I was young, I used to be very, very impulsive like that. As I've got older, I've learned, don't be too much like that and learn how to handle it. But when I was in my 20s, no, not at all, it was a fucking lunatic. And basically, I would just act on impulse. I'll tell you another story in a minute about what happened in Spain when I got deported the first time. And then, so there's no, oh, you've got to get yourself psyched up for this, and you, or you're changing your mind and you're humming and on. No, you've got to be, I'm doing this, it's getting done. And, and because of the geographical situation of it, I actually was able to get in there, back my mask up, go to the towel, and within two minutes I was gone with the money. That's how hard it was. It was so fucking easy that I went and done it again. And how much money did you get? The first time when I got about four and a half grand because I just wanted to get in and out. So I only done the first couple of tellers because I was on that time limit thing where I knew after a certain amount of time they're going to go bum, 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 bum. And then, yeah. And next time I done it, I nearly got caught the second time I done it. This was about a couple of months later and basically this time the woman come after us with a guy out of, out of place and chased me and ended up like basically getting chased in a blind alley luckily for me they were doing building work and there was one of them like you know when you got the plasterboard but it's got a cut out door on it and I kicked it and it opened and I basically got into the back of a McDonald's and I went into the McDonald's staff toilet and I just sat there for about an hour and a half and then I waited and I waited and I come out to McDonald's and then I just jumped on the old Route Master bus and off. Uh-huh. That was the second time. 
And then that was it then. There was no stopping me because I should have been caught that day, but I went. Hmm. Well, fuck him. Fuck him. But now, nah, Robin Banks and Mark him, even doing the security guards with the, the boxers. You can still get away with that if you know what you're doing. But with the bugs, they've got this new glue. But if you bounce the box straight away, it just opens with a with the die packs there's a way around the die packs as well you just I would foil up the box so if I had an activator on the guy's belt that it's going to block the same as the security tags do the, 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 the electrical signal getting to it then when you get home put the box in the bath or get the die packs and put them in the freezer and then turn the liquid dye into ice lolly so you can open the bags and it don't explode so for every ingenious situation they come up with for some human being who, who's got an answer for that? Oh, yeah, but then it's a lot more hassle to be a criminal now than it was, though, I would imagine, isn't it? Yeah, I, my advice to anyone who wants to be a criminal is go and join the Metropolitan Police, get yourself into the regional crime squad, and then get yourself a nice big fat nest egg by the time you're 30. That'd be my advice to anyone. Because they're the biggest criminals out there. Jesus. When they go into a house and they open a drawer and there's like 200 grand there, and they go back to the station and they say there's only a hundred grand there. You think that shit ain't happening? It's fucking happening. You're out there driving about taking dogs abuse off all in sundry, watching all these tossers driving around in big fancy motors, having everything they want, and you're struggling to pay your fucking sky that month. And you got a miserable wife who wants to go on holiday or whatever. That shit's happening, all right. That's why there have been so many of them arrested with it. Scotland's police service is a disgrace. They changed all the police into regional FBI, Scottish police. I went out there and they CRO'd me three days running and it said I'm not a criminal and asked me if I was born in Scotland. So that's how good their records are now. <laughs> Frightening, really, because you think, what's the other people running about Scotland that's got bad previous they don't even know anymore? Because apparently they, they wanted to divert all the f- type on the internet, allocated £1.2 uh, million pounds and the monies went missing. And this is Scottish police. And you were going to tell me about Spain as well. Oh, yeah. Fucking hell. I've deported from Spain twice. Gave the expulsion de la Territories notice. You can't come back. Because <laughs> what we found out in Spain was, we went there, and I think it was like four quid in the old Spanish money for a bag of Coke, and four quid for fucking brown. And actually went there to detox. Got off at this place, found that out. Within ten minutes, I was mad with it. Um, Canary Islands, like uh, Grand Canaria, um, played the lingos then as it was in the nineties, and a lot of addiction with the Spanish as well, and a lot of poverty. So I, w- I would go on the rampage there. Now I'd done this twenty nine times before I got caught by customs. We would go, and we would steal cigarettes, and then we would just bring the cigarettes back in massive suitcases back to Britain. So we was doing four and five grand haul. So you basically get a two hundred pound allocation on arrival flight. Go there for a week's holiday, get a suntan, and just short lift as much Lacoste, perfume, gold, and everything else for the shops as you can. We had diamond rings and everything. Anyway, I was always good over there. But what happened this weekend was, I went mad on a fucking Charlie with some geezer from Warrington. And I ended up doing all the money I'd earned in about four or five days and got the right cog on that, because I went there to spend my money. And I actually went into a bureau to change to cash the English money I had come with. But like I say, I used to go there and not spend nothing. I would just bank every day. 
And before I knew it, the bird had just opened the towel. It was on the, uh, Sunday morning and the bureau had change and she's just opened this fucking thing. And that was it. Just before I knew it, I had jumped the counter, grabbed the safe and bolted out the door. And I got chased down the road from this guy. And I actually got in my mate's apartment complex and got in and went to his apartment. And for some reason, the door never got answered. Or if I was at his neighbours and they got a flat mixed up or whatever. Anyway, and I basically... Went and had a bite eat, had it blagged, and a long story short, as I tried to get into a cab and I got nicked an hour and a half later and ended up over there and had to go to jail for at least seven days and then up in front of a judge and then in the Canaries. A Spanish police um, more brutal than the English police or British police? Um, you know what, I'll take a slap and then coming in and kicking your balls over the Spanish who know that you're sick and this first hour of sleep you've had in four days and they'll come and fingerprint you 55 times just to be a cunt um, they took me to hospital and says that they were going to give me something for, for the distress I was in and I just remember this wee Chinese doctor whipping down my brakes and stabbing me in the ass with a needle and when I went back the two Spanish geezers who was criminals in the cell who I sort of ended up speaking to said that's water in there. They basically just to shut you up, say, all right, all right, take you to the health centre and stab you in the arse with some water. So that's sort of dark shit to me. I would, I, and, like, just the way they treated you, man, you would just, like, they give you bread and water in the morning, bread, water and cheese at tea time, and you don't even have a toilet in your... And, and like, through the bars, you're just left alone there with three of these. So... If you're in any state of um, distress internally through the chemicals you've been taking, it's not exactly good if you ain't got a toilet in the cell. And um, yeah, so yeah, they are, but it's passive aggressive, passive aggressive torture. You can tell that they invented the Inquisition. <laughs> I tell you what I'm interested in as well is. Um that, that your dad would go from, and you know why I'm going to ask you this, mm. why your dad would go from selling heroin to then eventually helping people get off it. That That's interesting because you grew up with criminals and hippies and it seemed like he went from being a criminal, and I'm not judging when I say that, to then being a hippie or at least sort of the, the, there's some change in his life. How did that happen? See, you've got to understand that him and his brothers and his fathers and all the people next door to me, they all would work in these one of five factories. And my dad was what you would call these days functioning. He still would work. He had an apprenticeship. He had a job and everything. And I suppose you could maintain that for a certain level. But as his drug addiction grew, then obviously he couldn't do that. And I think it was more just like getting high, getting stoned. Summer of Love 67 I was born. That Remember that mindset people were in Woodstock, Rolling Stones... Who that sort of sort of stuff, and I think it was more just getting high, and then the more you got high and experienced amphetamines and this and that, and you experienced heroin, good heroin, and then it just steals your soul, and then nothing else matters, and then you just like I say, you get that tunnel vision where it's just you. Gear's like a lover; it's like a mistress who always ends up letting you down. Is always gonna fuck you, but you keep running back to it. That's the way I see it. But I think with my dad, what happened was that he got older. He got 38 years of age and he'd lost about maybe nine, ten mates from overdose. 
And then one of his oldest mates one day died. And the next day he was in a rehab. Did he sell him the heroin that killed him? No. No, no, it was um, actually pharmaceuticals that killed him. It went ahead on it's codeine. Banging up codeine. He was told not to do it and kept doing it. Because that's the other thing then as well. Back in the day, man, it went like London. It was like, when there wasn't any, there wasn't any. If you got one person was basically giving it to the main five, the main five get knocked out of the picture, and that one person gets knocked out of the picture, then everybody's hurting. So it's either go and screw a chemist, or feel well. So it's that sort of climate as well of boomer bust. It's all boomer bust very much in Scotland, even when my early days of start using heroin, and the heroin was good. But I never took heroin, I used to hate heroin, I was more educated on it than everybody else. And like you say, I got a £20 fucking draw, ended up in jail for a year, and ended up on the gear, and the rest is history. But my dad, I think it was predominantly age, maturity, and, you know, when your kids are little, you can get away with a lot when they're 7, 8, and 9. But when they start getting 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, when your children are getting fucking... I mean, I can only imagine how you felt about that. I never sat in group women rehab, though I did end up doing rehab with people that was... We've done rehab with him who ended up my key workers and all that sort of scene, which is fucking weird. But um, I would imagine you had a lot of guilt about that as well. A lot of guilt about what you've done to my mum. Fucking all that shit. But... What did he do to your mum? Well, got her on heroin. So he'd be alright in the fucking jail for three fucking years. And he'd still come back out and still have a business, I suppose. But my old man was mad on coke. He'd, he'd build up a fucking enormous amounts of money and then about a decent coke would come because he loved both. He loved speedballing. And that was, that was his kryptonite. See, for me, like, as well, it's like, I think it's a lot more damaging than heroin and cocaine and a lot more shorter time. If the government would let people have heroin like Switzerland, people would just be normal. It ain't heroin that kills you, it's a lifestyle and the impurities. Whereas cocaine will drive psychosis into a man. No matter what, within six months, you're not the same person. Psychologically. You can come back if your body ravaged, but if your brain's ravaged, there's no coming back. That's true. How how long was your mum on the run for then? You mean the the place we're after her? (laughs) She got in from liberation, um, which is basically they've sentenced you to your sentence, but you put in an appeal just to get out. Most people don't do it unless they want to get a pass while they've got a chance of winning because you can't go back to the interim living and the judge can say, you ain't getting less, you're getting more. It really works in your favour. Though I had it work in my favour one time instead of doing a year and ended up walking, which was good. And uh, But, yeah, so that was 89. When she come down here then. So it was 89, 19, she died 2013. I phoned up the Procurator Fiscal's office a week after I got a death certificate to let them know so they could take her name off the, off the list. It was just the... I mean, the people there wasn't even born when she was running rings running them, but it was for my own satisfaction more than anything. My mum would have laid that with me to laugh. Thank you very much for listening. That is the end of episode four. As always, I'm going to ask you to please leave a review on iTunes and to share the podcast if you've liked it. Please tell people about it. My aim is to get these 
amazing stories out there to as many people as possible because I think they deserve to be heard and I'm thoroughly enjoying the journey. So thank you for enjoying the journey with me and goodbye for now.